Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Let's see if we can get through this. Uh, but again, if you're here for the first time, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, we're going to study, uh, we're continuing our study in Isaiah. And uh, we're studying through the book of this. And the way that we're doing it is we're looking at, uh, at three lenses, through three lenses. It's a, it's a massive book. It's 66 chapters. And so the way that we're studying Isaiah is thematically. We're looking at it through three lenses of God as our uh, king. We looked at the Davidic king in the first uh, 48 chapters, or the first 33 chapters, where there's a, a flow of the Davidic king, and then there's this transition to the next middle of the book, which is God our servant, the, the, four, uh, the four songs, the five, just five, there's roughly four to five songs that you can pick out, the suffering servant songs that we're studying as God is our servant, and then we're going to look at God as our conqueror, and we're looking at, there's a ton of themes that you could look through in the book of Isaiah, and, uh, but as God uh, opens himself up to us in this book as Isaiah has written this, you could rename it the gospel according to Isaiah because the good news of Jesus Christ, of God's salvation, is so central to the entire book uh, that we uh, might call it a gospel written uh, 700 years before Jesus Christ. Isaiah is the clearest and most concise picture of Jesus that we see. And so my hope is that as we study this, that the awe and the wonder of Jesus, that no other person in history matches the description of the things that we see in the text, and especially this morning as we continue to see Jesus as the servant that was sent. And I think all of us, I was thinking this week, uh, want to be in awe and wonder of things. If we, if we weren't people that wanted to be in awe of things, we wouldn't stare at fireworks for so long. We, we gather and we look at fireworks, we wait for that grand display at the end, Men wouldn't stare at fire. Do you ever notice if guys, when you see a bunch of men gathering around, if you light something on fire, we tend to like gravitate towards it and we'll stare. And somebody inevitably will say, we're just looking at fire and it's so entertaining. And then we'll spend hours doing that. Or children look at pictures or uh, we look at beauty and art. And, and there is a desire in our heart to be in awe of something. And like I said last time we were studying this is that uh, God has created creation so that we would be in awe and wonder of the one who created it. That creation has nothing on the creator. And so there is nothing that compares to the glory and the wonder of Jesus. And so we're going to look at another portrait of Jesus. Uh, who is the servant to come? When we're talking about the suffering servant in Isaiah 49, 1 through 10, uh, the first song was in Isaiah 42. And we looked at Isaiah 42 and we were given an introduction uh, to the suffering servant, that he's gentle, he's tender, he's compassionate, he's doggedly persevering the salvation of his people. And last week, Ricky unpacked for us Isaiah 44, where he talked about idolatry, that idol- idolatry lets us down. Idols let us down, but God does not. Uh, that we can trust our God who delivers on promises, unlike our idols who fail to deliver on their promises. And we all have idols. We all do it. That was the crux. That's central to what I, Israel was struggling with. The audience of this is, is, is a people who are in exile. They're not living in their homeland anymore. They're captive under Babylonian uh, captivity. And they're wondering if God hears them. And so what Isaiah is doing is he's painting a picture of a servant who would come 
and save them. And so uh, the greatness of Jesus, I was, thinking about, I was just thinking about this is about the greatness of Jesus, that there is nothing better, nothing better than Jesus. He is the greatest. Uh, and the, what makes him great is not only who he is, but how he accomplishes what he was sent to do. It's what he does that makes him great. It's who he is that makes him great. And how he does it is unbelievable because it's, it's, it's contrary to what we would think. We think about greatness. We think about splendor. We think about things that are flashy, but the servant comes. He's not flashy. He doesn't, he doesn't have a campaign. And so Isaiah, if you were to summarize what this, this section of Isaiah, the suffering servant, this middle section of the book, is that Isaiah shows us the greatness of Jesus. Isaiah shows us the greatness of Jesus and what Jesus is actually like so that we might all conform to his greatness and not our own. That our lives would be conformed to him and not the other way around. Because that's what we do. We, we make Jesus an idol. We, we create Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is this. Some of you uh, know the baby Jesus prayer in uh, uh, Talladega Nights. I don't recommend that movie, but the Ricky Bobby prayer, dear baby Jesus. Does anybody, does anybody know? Dear baby Jesus. And then they go around the table, and he, thank, he thanks baby Jesus because he likes baby Jesus best. And his wife's like, he's grown up, baby. He's like, I don't care. I like baby Jesus best, and I'm going to pray to baby Jesus. And then his kids say, I think of, of Jesus as kind of like a ninja. And then his friend, his best friend Cal says, I like to picture Jesus as kind of like he wears a tuxedo T-shirt. Do you know what I'm talking about? He kind of likes to party, but he's formal too. I like my Jesus. I like party Jesus. And what they're doing is it, it is, it is, it is mocking, not Jesus, but mocking our humans desire to mold the almighty living God into our image. And that's not the way that it works. The greatness of Jesus is what we're supposed to mold ourselves into. So what makes Jesus great? It's his service. It's his love. It's his compassion. I think about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, I saw that movie when I went on vacation last week. I saw the movie Napoleon, and Napoleon was an incredibly military genius. He was uh, a bit concerned, though, about his own greatness. And there's a picture. I don't know if you've seen this picture. Is it up there? This is the coronation of Napoleon. Only the thing that was different about Napoleon is that he coronated himself. He crowned himself king of France. They let him do it, and then he said that I am now the king, the emperor. He had uh, a little bit of uh, a self-megalomaniac issue. He had issues. I have issues. And I have absolutely loved studying this book for two reasons. One, because of my confidence and conviction that is growing. One, the confidence in God. As I read this and I study this, the greatness of God and his sovereignty, his plan, his son, my confidence in what God can do is growing. But my conviction about how much I'm concerned about my own greatness strikes me. That I am worried about many things, and one of them is whether or not I'm going to accomplish all that I want to accomplish, if I'm going to be known and this book is causing me to focus, and I hope it's causing you to focus on the greatness of Jesus. And that I don't have to allow frustrations, I don't have to allow letdowns or regrets to dictate how I feel, or whether God's uh, near me or he's for me, because Jesus didn't. We'll see in this passage that even Jesus had frustrations, and yet God the Father encourages him 
disciplines him and encourages him to go. And we are reminded about how very much unlike Jesus we are when we look at the text. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the good news is that God does not look at our lack of greatness. He looks at Christ's greatness. And then he sees us in light of that. He looks through Jesus and sees that we are great because of him. And that's the greatness of the gospel. So this morning, as you walk out of here, I want you to understand three things. I want you to understand the greatness of Jesus. I want you to think about how great Jesus is. And then I want you to think how great the gospel is. And then I want you to think how great the church is, the body of Christ. Because the greatness of the church is dependent on the greatness of Jesus. Now, in this text, as we're looking at it, it's helpful to know uh, who's speaking. This is a conversation this morning, and it's a conversation between the father and the servant that he sends, and then Isaiah is going to recall a conversation between them. And so if you can follow who's speaking through the text, it's super helpful to know who's quoting who and who's being addressed. And this is pretty common in prophetic literature because you're, you're, if you've noticed, you've read through things like, who's speaking here? Like, who's speaking to who? And so uh, if you can follow along, it's helpful. So first, let's look at Isaiah 49. If you're not there yet, um, well, we're there now. First, the servant is going to speak to those who are living in faraway places. Coasts and islands, faraway places. Again, this is, this is a people who are used to living in modern-day Israel, the, the Middle East. This is where Israel and Iraq and Iran are. This is, they are in this area but coasts, islands, far off, listen to me. This is the servant speaking. Listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. Listen up. There's consequences to not listening, but there's rewards for listening. That's what that means. Listen, pay attention. The Lord called me, and he named me while I was in my mother's room. Does that ring a bell? When Mary and Joseph heard, they were told, this is what you shall name your son. The servant here is saying, he called me. The Lord called me while I was in my mother's womb. God tends to do this. He names us before he gives birth to us. Jeremiah, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that very same things. The Lord called me. He named me, and he sent me. God does that. And names have something. They're, they're significant. He names him because that is his purpose. That is the, the thing that represents, your name is what represents what you'll do, who you are, who you're loved. Names meant something. He says, the Lord called me, named me. Verse 2, he made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a shepherd, a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I myself said, well, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in futility, yet my vindication is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Next, the servant is going to quote a conversation that he has with the father. So the the, the servant is speaking to the far-off peoples. He's speaking about what he has been sent to do and what he is and, and, and who has sent him. And then, and now, verse 5, says the Lord who formed me. He's, he's recounting a conversation that he had with the Lord. The Lord who formed me for a purpose from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. That's interesting because if you notice in verse 3, who, who, is, who is he? Verse 3 says that he's Israel. But here in verse 5, 
He's being sent to Israel. That's where we see that he is the representative of Israel. He has been called to represent Israel. Because Israel can't save them. They can't save themselves. Jacob is the same name as Israel. Israel and Jacob are the same. They are to be gathered to him. He's sent to rescue them because they can't save themselves. So here is the representative of Israel saying that his purpose is to bring them back. Verse 6, it's not enough, though, that you would be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the protected ones of Israel. It's not enough that you just do that. I'm going to also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not enough that you're just going to save Israel, bring them back. I need you to go to the nations. I need you to go to every single person on the earth. Verse 7, we have another shift. So finally, the servant speaks, and then in the last few verses, he has quoted a conversation that he's had with the, fa- uh, the, with the father. And then finally, in verse 7, we see that uh, Isaiah is now quoting what the father said to the servant. So this is Isaiah quoting what the father said to the servant. We know this because it says, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, says to, to one, the servant who is That's how we know that it's Isaiah. He's saying this is what the Lord said to the one who we just know has been selected, who is, notice how he's described, despised, abhorred by people. He says this to a servant of rulers. Kings will see you. Princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. This is what the Lord says to the servant. I will answer you, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritance, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways, and their pastures will be on all the barren heights, and they will not hunger or thirst the scorching heat or sun will not strike them for their compassionate one. That's the servant, their compassionate one. The one who will come to rescue them, will guide them and lead them to the springs. There is a, there's a ton of stuff in this song, but I want, I want to ask four questions that will help us guide through this, to the, the song, just get you to orient. Here's four questions. Let's ask the question, again, what does the father say to the servant? What does the father say to the servant? And then what will the father make the servant? So as we work through here, we know who's talking. The father says to the servant something. What does he he say? And then what does he make of him? And then we need to ask ourselves, what does the servant say to us? He's speaking to us. I have one friend that opens up every sermon with, uh, listen, these are the very words of Christ speaking to you right now as if he was standing here teaching. And it's true. God's word is speaking to you right now. So what is the servant saying to you right now? And then what will the servant make of us? Because the servant is sent to make us into something. First, let's ask the question, what does the father say to the servant? Let's look at the passage again. Look at verse 3. You are my servant Israel, whom I will be glorified, in whom I will be glorified. You are Israel. You're a representative. You are Israel. Everything you do counts as if Israel We'll do it. We know from studying Isaiah that Israel has failed to be the witness in the world that they were called to be. Look at verse 6. The father says, it's not enough that you would be my servant just to raise up the tribes who are in exile to bring them back 
or to restore the protected ones of Israel. See, God still loves them. Though they're in exile, they are protected. God has, remember the question that they asked last time. They're like, do you hear me? Do you hear us? Do you see us? And the answer is yes. Verse chapter 40, I do see you. I do hear you. Therefore, I'm going to send someone. What, what does the father say will happen? How will his response be seen in the world? Verse 7, kings are going to see you. Princes are going to stand up. They will all bow down because of the Lord. The Lord who sends a servant is going to make every single king, every single prince, they're going to stand. When you, uh, when you have royalty come in, we don't have royalty in the United States of America, but when uh, we're at a wedding, what does everyone do when the bride comes to the back? What do we do? We stand. When, when someone of honor comes in, we stand and we clap. It's the same thing. When a king walks in, you stand. And then when he sits, you sit. In the same way, this one will come and every king will stand. In fact, Paul says in Philippians that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow and say that Jesus is Lord. That one day, everyone, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who you are, you will stand. And then you will take the knee. Kings will see. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Verse 8, the Father says, I will answer you and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. You're going to restore all of the land. In verse 9, you're going to say to prisoners, come out, be free. And they will all feed along the pathways. And their pastures will be on all the barren heights. There will be spiritual renewal. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That's what we covered. The word of the Lord was to bring spiritual renewal into the life of his people. Now, the heart of the message to the Father, not the particulars, but the heart of the message. What is the Father? Think to yourself, what exactly is now the Father saying to the servant? What is he telling him? He's saying, in you, I'm going to display my splendor. I'm going to be glorified. I'm, the glory of me is going to be in you. The Lord is saying, my glory is going to be in you. I'm going to display my glory. He also says, it's too small for you just to rescue Israel. And then he says, kings are going to see you. Princes are going to bow down. Kings are going to rise up. Princes are going to... What, what is the core of this message? Essentially, the father is saying to the servant, you, my son, are going to be great. You're going to be great. We like to tell that to our kids, right? We like to tell that. We like to hear that, right? We like to hear, you know what? We hired you for this job. You're going to be great at it, right? No pressure. <laughs> we expect you to be great. We're going to pay you to be great. And if you're not great, we'll have a conversation and then we'll let you go. How does that, right? At first, you feel like, I'm great. I am great. I am great. And then all of a sudden, you start making some mistakes and your, your boss comes in and you're not so great. You're like, I am, I, right? How, it feels great on the front end. doesn't feel so good if we fail. But here, the Father's saying, you are going to be great that's the heart of the message. Now, the question is, where it gets interesting is in the particulars. This one's going to come and he's going to be great. How, then, will the servant be great? How will he be great? How is he going to display the splendor of God? Why are all of these kids, why are they going to rise up? Why are princes going to bow down? Why is it too small a thing just for Israel? They're answered in the second question, is what will the father, how will the father make this all happen? What will the father make of the servant? 
uh, this father speaks to the servant here, and the, the father twice uses a particular fr- phrase. He says, I will make you. I'm going to do this. And he uses the phrase to tell the servant two things. I'm going to give you a scope. You know what a scope is? A scope is the breadth with which Israel is not just your scope. A scope lets you see a purview of vision. A scope lets you say, you're not just going to talk to these people. You're going to say this to everyone. So his scope is wide. It's the whole world. It's coastlands. It's islands. It's, it's not just Israel. But it's also going to be how he does it. He's going to save the nations, but how is he going to do that? And so there's a twofold purpose in the mission for the servant. He's, he's going to bring Israel back to himself through the servant, but then he's going to bring salvation to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. He's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to be salvation for them. In verse 6, he says, I will also make you a light. That necessitate when you need a light, what, why do you, not just a cigarette. When you ask someone to say, hey, can I have a light? You know, usually it's like if you have a cigarette, someone gives you a light. But if you're like, it's dark in here, I need a light. It, there's darkness, you can't see, you want to go somewhere. This servant is going to be a light for the Gentiles. Which reveals God's heart. You're not just going to go to these people and neglect these people. You're going to go to these people and everyone else. In fact, so there's no one that you're not going to go to. Does that make sense? Aren't you glad there's a God whose heart is for everyone and not just a select few? How's it feel to be part of the select few that are not chosen to be loved? to be included. No one likes to be picked last for kickball. I was never picked last for kickball, but you know, that's not true. Sometimes I was picked last for other sports. But to be included, to be loved, to be sought after, to know that, hey, at parties, I'm the guy that if you're trying to hide, if you're an introvert and you've been dragged there by your spouse, right, I'm the guy you hate at that party. Because I'm going to be partying, I'm going to be talking, and I'm going to see Ricky hiding over there in the corner, and I'm going to say, hey, what's your name? How are you? Where are you from? How are you? Come on over here. And he's going to be like, I don't want to go. That's why I'm hiding over there. God's heart is that no one would be left in a corner hiding, wondering or not whether they're seen. The servant is going to be the one who comes to be the light for them. What does it mean that he's going to bring them back? That Jesus would be a light, a salvation to the nations. Back to what? How, 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 what is Israel going to be brought back to? Well, they're going to be brought back to a relationship with God. That was, that was a covenant between God and his people. That's why he says you will be a covenant now for them. You will be a covenant not only for Israel, but I'm going to make you to be a covenant. Some of you ladies are studying covenant right now on Monday evenings. You're studying what a covenant is, and you could probably answer this question uh, just as clearly. But a covenant was a contract. The servant is going to be a covenant. He's going to be a new contract. Jesus is the new covenant. It is a guarantee. He's going to be a guarantee that what is agreed upon between two parties is going to happen. 
this servant is going to be a covenant. He's going to be the guarantee of something promised, something you can rely upon, something that you can go back to and say, you said that this is what the contract stipulated, that our relationship is never going to be broken. He's not going to break his covenant. He's not going to break his contract. He's not going to break his word with you. In fact, God is saying that over and over and over again in Isaiah. He's like, listen, my, my word is good. My word will last forever. Your word, you broke it, but my word will never be broken. You broke the contract of relationship with me. You divorced me. You, you committed adultery. You worshiped other gods, but I've been right here the whole time faithful to you. Over and over and over again, I rescued you out of Egypt. I fed you in the wilderness. I told you the truth. I told you I loved you, yet you still failed to believe me. Now I'm going to send a son. Servant, you will be a covenant. You won't just speak the covenant. You will be the covenant. Because it's not just a small thing for God to love just one person. He wants to open it up and love the entire world. To give them the option the, 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 the possibility that, yes, there's a God who sees you and loves you and has paid your debt. You can enter into a covenant with him that can never be broken. I will keep you, and I will make you a covenant. I don't have time to do a deep drive, but every covenant has a number of specific elements, and there's an, there's an obligation. When you draw up a contract, you guys know how this works, right? You, you draw up a contract with an, uh, an employer, or you, you sign a mortgage, and you say, I will pay X amount, or you will pay me X amount for, for X services, right? And then how do, we, how do we secure that contract? We put our signature. We sign it. We make a deposit. A covenant that was cut between Israel started with Abraham. And if in Genesis 15, you can look there for a moment. I have it up here. There's a description of how God would cut a covenant. And essentially what he would do is he would take animals. In the, in the ancient Near East, they would cut these animals and they would, they would flay them in half. They would split an animal in half. In Genesis 15, 9, we see here, look, see, God says, bring me, Abram. Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he, he brought them. God tells Abraham to bring them to him, and he cut them in half. When you cut an animal in half, there's blood. And what the contract was was the understanding that in verse 10, look, in verse 10, there is going to be blood walked through by one party or the other. Now, typically, how you would cut this contract is you would, you would both parties would, it's, it's pretty brutal. Aren't you glad you just signed signatures now? You're like, man, this is kind of, but what it was was as this is done to the animals, so may it be done to me if ever I break this contract. It was a, it was a, it was a pretty poignant way of saying, look, we're going to walk together through this blood, and if any of us breaks the contract, we look back and this will be done to us. Do we agree? And you shake hands. The twist here is that God cuts the covenant contract with Abram, and he's the one that walks through. Abram falls asleep. He, sees, he wakes up, and he sees God walking through this contract and saying, this is my covenant with you, Abram. You are going to be a great nation. Your people are going to grow. They're going to be in slavery, but I will rescue them out, and I will always be with you. And what he was saying to Abram is that what I've just walked through in blood, 
these animals split in half, torn asunder. May it be done to me if ever I break my word with you or your children or your children's children or your children's children's children. 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 Forever, ever. Forever, ever. Jeremiah 34, 18, as, the, as for those who disobeyed my covenant, God says, not keeping the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will treat them like the calf that they cut in two in order to pass between its places. God recalls Israel, remember the covenant that you made with me and then you broke with me? So God walks down the middle and he tells the servant, you're going to be the new covenant. What does that mean for the servant? It means that God is going to send someone who would be the contract. And he would not only be the contract, he would work the contract out himself. Do you see where this is going? There would be one who would be torn asunder, the one who would be separated, the one who would shed blood, the one who would be the guarantee for the relationship between God and man. Not just Israel, God and mankind. On the cross, God himself suffered and bled and died. Jesus Christ shed his blood. He was torn asunder from the Father. The Father forsook him, turned his eyes away from him because the sin that was of great weight upon the shoulders of his son. The holy God looked at the son whom he said, and he said, you are going to bear the guilt for the ones who broke the covenant, but you are the covenant. You're the contract. You're the one I sent. God made Christ to be the covenant. That's what Isaiah is pointing to, that this servant is going to be abhorred, despised. That's what makes it so strange because, you know, God says, you're going to be great. And yet, no one believed that anyone who was beaten, despised, abhorred, was blessed by God. One who was hanging on a cross, punished by a government. One who died was not blessed by God. God brings life. He brings flourishing. But yet, no, here's a strange thing that God says, you're going to be great and you're going to be despised. You're going to shed blood. You're going to suffer. And what that does is that means that Christ came and by shedding his blood and by being the covenant fulfilled the contract between God and man. That God shed his blood in his own son. That his son then died and was buried and rose again. And the resurrection is the receipt of payment. The fact that Christ was raised to life is the fact that the contract was fulfilled. That all that Christ did on behalf of Israel and the nations was good enough to then pay the debt that we so deserve to pay. But yet, that still needed to be paid. And so Christ, as the servant who was foretold 700 years before, right here in this passage, it's not enough for you just to save Israel, but to save all mankind. The Lord made him to be a covenant. And not only to be a covenant, but to also satisfy the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant by his perfect life, and he suffered the consequence of our falling 
to fulfill it by his death. So the father says to the servant, you're going to be great. And he says, you will be a covenant for the entire world. And that is absolutely, incredibly mind-blowing that, that he would do that for us. Jesus is not just some moral teacher. He doesn't drop some pithy ways to live life. He actually is our light and salvation. And the light is this, that if God himself was willing to fulfill the contract to rescue a people who denied him, who committed adultery to him, that worshiped other idols, if he would rescue those people, then there is also hope for me because we're all in the same boat. For all have what? We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the light is this, is like, well, if you can forgive and love these people, can you forgive me? I live in this island. I'm not part of Israel. Paul says that you were born apart from the promises of Israel. But God is saying, no, 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 you were born apart, but yet you are included now because Christ has been the salvation, the light of the world. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, but all can come to the Son. The offer is for you. It was for me. So in the remaining time, the brief remaining time that we have, what does the servant say to us, therefore? So for those of us sitting here this morning, what does he say? What does the contract between God and man, how does he fulfill this? What makes him great? What makes him great? The servant says to us, the Lord says, you're going to be great. I'm going to answer you. I'm going to, you're, going to, you're going to ask for my help, and I'm going to help you. And then what are you going to do? Look at verse 9. The servant is going to say to prisoners, come out, come out, you're free, released, your debt is paid, come out. And to those of you who are in darkness, he's going to say, show yourselves, come out. You're hiding in darkness for your sin, come out. Your sins can be forgiven, trust the Lord God, your debt has been paid, come out. Every one of us knows what captivity feels like in one form or another. You may not have been in jail, but you know what it feels like to be stuck in something. You know what it is to have some bad habits, right? Some character traits that you're trying to shake, you just can't. Ask my wife, she's got a list of them. She doesn't share them all with me, but I'm sure there's a list somewhere in her head. We're slaves to idolatry. We we, we are slaves to sin because sin at its root is slavery. We are slaves to sin. We can't help but not do that which we know is wrong. No matter how hard we try. That's what it is to be in captivity. The guilt of what you've done. Some, there's something in your life. And I know this because there's something in my life. There's lots of things in my life where I know that I feel guilty for. I feel the guilt of weight of the thing that I've done, the things that you're guilty for, the things that you rightfully should feel guilt for, the shame of what you become, God has promised to pay your debt before him. And he has promised to relieve that guilt and that burden off of your shoulders. When he walked that path through the animal, when he walked the path to the cross, when he went to the cross and he hung on the cross, the promise was kept and you do not need to remain a captive under the guilt of sin. That's what, that's what the gospel, the greatness of the gospel is like, what have you done? List it, write it down. The worst thing that you've ever done. Just, just one, the one worst thing that you've ever done. Thought, 
that has been paid for. And everything else can be paid for. That's what the greatness of the gospel is. That's what people struggle with. Some of you are struggling this with right now. You, you, you can't fathom the fact that God would forgive even this. I just don't understand. Why would I come to a God who would forgive this grievous sin? That's the greatness of the gospel. The good news is that there is nothing that you have done that God has not covered with the blood of his son because he has the bank account to cover it. So come out, Christ says. Be released. Open up your eyes. Live in the light. Jesus came to set us free so that you would not be lost in sin and the fear of death. There's a better way to live. And he can take you to it because he is the shepherd that leads us to that. He will lead you. Look at verse 10. They will not hunger or thirst. If, if you've heard Jesus, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me for those of you who are what? Thirsty, and I will give you a drink. Come to me, all of you who are hungry, and I will give you something to eat. I am, John says, Jesus says, I'm the what? I'm the good. Come on now, people. I spent a weekend with some charismatic brothers and sisters, and I'm just like, there, is, there should be like at least 35 amens already. And hands, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd leads you to good Water, still water. I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside calm waters. He, he leads me to grass to feed. That is an imagery of he will satisfy your soul, knowing that you are loved and forgiven, because not of something that you've done, but because of everything that he has done himself for you. The pressure's off. You're not great. He is. And that's what makes him great. The greatness of Jesus. He is great. He is great. And the greatness of the Gospels, it really is good news. The greatness of the Gospels is good news. For those of you, I hope it's sinking in right now. For you and for me, that when I focus on my own greatness, I am let down. But when I think about a, a Savior who loves me and gave himself for me, I'm just, I can't, I can't understand it, but I believe it. And my heart, my heart melts. And I'm relieved that today I can receive forgiveness, that he knew it and he covered it. And he leads me to satisfaction. The same is true for you if you're struggling. Would you trust Christ? He's great to save. The gospel is great. And the greatness of the church is this, that we are to be a light. This is what the servant says to us. Paul says it really quickly in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas said that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you reject it and judge yourselves. He's speaking to uh, people who uh, rejected, the, the, the Jews rejected Christ, they crucified him, and they're constantly calling the Jewish people to salvation in Christ. He's your Messiah. He's the one promised to you. He's the one that Isaiah foretold, and they just simply couldn't accept it. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying, fine, we're going to go to the coastlands. That's the Gentiles are the ones who are non-Jews. We're going to go and turn to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah 49. Paul applies that call to be a light to himself. And the word of God calls the church, the body of Christ, to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Paul says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. 
to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We aren't just recipients of grace, the servant says to us. We are also dispensers of it. How do we dispense grace? We dispense grace by proclaiming the good news of Christ and him crucified. Dead, buried, risen on the third day, ascended to the throne. And if you believe and repent, and you have to repent, you have to turn. It's not just like, okay, that sounds like good news. You actually turn and are released and free. You shall be saved. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.